Now let us turn together in the New Testament scriptures to the 17th chapter of the book of Acts as we read this morning the opening verses once more of Paul's visit to the Greek city of Athens in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, from verse 16 and then at the very end of Paul's great address to the Athenians on Mars Hill or the Areopagus in verse 32 and following. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, as many of you know, there follows the account of the invitation to Paul to speak on Mars Hill before one of the greatest audiences that he had ever addressed in his life, and we pick up the end of that great sermon that we have studied for two Sundays in verse 32, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thus reads the living and abiding word of God. Now for two Sunday mornings we have been considering together the visit of the great Apostle Paul to the Greek city of Athens. Surely one of the most important and instructive and vital passages in all of the book of Acts. And certainly, as I said to you in the reading this morning, it was an opportunity for the Apostle Paul to address one of the greatest and most significant audiences that he spoke to in the whole of his long apostolic ministry. The most learned men of the age were there in Athens, in that council of Athens that was known as the Areopagus, There were lecturers, evidently, in that audience, and very probably students of the philosophies and the study of life there on the fringe of the crowd that Paul addressed at this specially called meeting of the highest council in the learned world of Paul's age. Yet you remember that it was a city that Paul had entered that was given over wholly to the worship of idols, that was characterized by superstition on the one hand. As Paul saw everywhere he looked, statues and idols and shrines and temples and altars on all the streets and every corner, as it were, of Athens, 
a city given to speculation. As we read of the two schools of philosophy that asked the ultimate questions about life, who is God and what is man and why am I here upon the earth? And a city, moreover, as you remember, that was characterized by love of the sensational. Everything that was new and novel had a ready ear in the city of Athens. And it was into such a circumstance as that that the great apostle Paul had come with the gospel of Christ and had shared it so effectively with the Athenians upon the Areopagus. Now it is, as we have seen on these Sunday mornings, one of the most remarkable sermons in all of the book of Acts, but addressed the very questions that were in men's minds that they could not, in their ignorance of the true God, answer. Who is God? What am I? What is the meaning and the significance of human life upon the earth? Now, we would have expected, surely, my dear friends, that after such a powerful address which we explored last Sunday morning together, the Athenians would have responded to Paul in great numbers. But instead, you remember, we read this morning that there was a mere handful who believed the gospel that Paul had preached and embraced the good news that he had brought to them that the unknowable God is indeed knowable in Christ and that they needed to repent of their sins and come with brokenness before this God who is creator of heaven and earth. There was a university don, as we would say today, a man called Dionysius, a member of that learned council, and a woman called Damaris, who is mentioned for some reason that we don't know about in this chapter of Acts. And there were a number of others, says the historian Luke. So different is the thought of God from the thought of men, isn't it? where we would have expected large numbers to be converted. But you see, the lesson surely is that in the hearing of God's word, it is not just the hearing of the ear that is important, but the hearing of the inward conscience. And what conscience, beloved, could there be in a city that was wholly given over to the study of novelty? What is new must be true was their attitude. And they were only interested in the Apostle Paul because he brought some passing novelty to their attention. But the search for God's truth, the lasting and the only and the unique truth, was never even in their thoughts. And there was laughter in Athens. Now as we come to this passage for the third and final time this morning, I want you to consider what Paul is saying to us as Christian men and women and boys and girls today, because I'm assuming that the great majority of us here in this congregation this morning are committed to the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What is the apostle conveying to you 
and to me. What is he saying to us in all this great account of his visit to the ancient Greek city of Athens? And what should our response be? Now, I've suggested three things to you on the sermon note sheet this morning upon which I want us to focus our attention. And the first is that Paul is surely saying to us that the message of the gospel is a comprehensive message. We are immediately struck, or we ought to be, by the comprehensiveness of Paul's message. The first great lesson that stands out as we summarize his visit to Athens. In other words, what I mean is how well the apostles spoke. How, to use a figure of speech, he covered every base in that great address to the Athenians, how he took these learned men who nevertheless were so ignorant of the true God and the true gospel, how he took them into the great overarching fundamental truths of God's word. Now listen, why do I draw your attention to this? Because today, men and women and boys and girls are similarly ignorant of the true God, in spite of our claim to be a Christian nation. And not only so, many adults today reject the gospel, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Do you see what I'm saying to you? One of the great faults of the Christian church is to present a trivial gospel, to trivialize God's truth. How often have you heard and seen this done? How often have you seen the slogan chalked on a wall here in Jacksonville, Christ is the answer? And if I were an unbeliever, I would immediately want to respond, what is the question? How often have you heard the gospel preached in a simplistic way that simply says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but gives you no real reason why you should do so? How often have you heard the gospel summarized as being to walk up the aisle and make a profession of faith? And what surely this passage is telling us is that Paul never trivialized the gospel, beloved. And what our world needs today is a bigger gospel than is often being preached, the full gospel of Scripture. What Paul, in a later passage of Acts, in chapter 20, as he calls the elders of Ephesus together, what Paul calls the whole counsel of God, or what Paul does in this passage that is before us in a comprehensive message. Now, what is it? What is this comprehensive message? We studied it last Sunday morning. Do you remember? I'm not going into it all again. But let me remind you that what Paul presented to these men was not a gospel ditty, was it? Just a little talk with Jesus will make it all right. Was that what the apostle did, beloved? 
wasn't it rather majestic in its sweep? It began with God, the Creator, as we saw in verse 22. It ended in verse 31 with God, the Judge. And all through it was a powerful message of man's accountability to God, yet so phrased with a tender recognition of man's sinnerhood and blindness and helplessness before this God who is creator and judge and man's great urgent need of the gospel of Christ. That was Paul's comprehensive message. Or to break it down a little further, you remember, he proclaimed God in his fullness as creator, sustainer, ruler, father of mankind. The God who takes in the whole of nature and the whole of history and is in control, you remember, of even where the nations find themselves apportioned on the face of the earth. And you recall that I said to you, what a message for the present day and the present moment in the Middle East. The aggression of Iraq taking over the little country of Kuwait, thinking this land can belong to me. God appoints the bounds that men will inhabit upon the earth. He appoints the day and hour of the rise of one nation and the fall of another into decline and disillusion. And the whole sweep of nature and history is under the hand of a sovereign God. And Paul had passed all of time in review as well, from the creation of all the nations from one man right through to the consummation of history when God has appointed the judgment of all men by another man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of geography and history and all the flowing currents of time are in the hand of Almighty God. He emphasized the greatness of God. And he argued that men, remember, already know these things. They're revealed in the book of nature around us and in the process of history before us. By natural and general revelation, all the nations of men can know these things and are therefore accountable to God and are inexcusable in their sin. And so he said to them, the worship of idols that I've seen on every street corner of Athens, lining the streets in their hundreds and their thousands as we have seen, before God is not inexcusable or innocent. And so he called on them with great solemnity before it was too late to repent, to be sorrowful in heart, to be broken up within themselves for what they had done, this awful thing, in taking the revenue of glory that belongs to the God of heaven and earth and giving it instead to lumps of stone and wood and marble in the streets of Athens. You see, he didn't sidestep a single issue. 
in this comprehensive message of the whole counsel of God that ended with the Athenians born, as it were, into the presence of God, the judge of all, and warned that God has already set that day and chosen that one man, Christ Jesus, by whom they will be judged. Now let me ask you again, why is this important? Because, beloved, all of this is the gospel. It's not just have a little talk with Jesus, is it? It's indispensable to the gospel that is a biblical gospel without which the gospel cannot be preached or witnessed to in this age. And the gospel is only meaningful to men and women today when they understand who God is and who they are and why they are accountable to him as sinners. We need more than ever to preach this bigger gospel of the scriptures. And you learn, you see, from it, that you cannot preach the gospel without the doctrine of God. You cannot preach the cross of Jesus without the doctrine of creation. You cannot preach salvation through Christ without reminding men and women of the reality of the judgment day. Think about that address of Paul. And you must come to that conclusion that what men and women today need is this bigger gospel, the full gospel of Scripture, the comprehensiveness of the apostles' message. Now, do you bring that in when you witness to others? Or do you just say to men and women, you're in trouble and you need to believe in Jesus? We need to bring in all of these things in order that Christ's work might be set in the proper framework of God and man and judgment if God the Holy Spirit is going to use it to the glory of God and the salvation of sinners the comprehensiveness of Paul's message. Now, the second thing I believe that Paul would say to us if he were here and applying the lessons of this visit to Athens to us today, the second thing is the depth and power of Paul's motivation. We're focusing here not upon his message, but upon the motivation that drove him first into the synagogue in Athens, then into the marketplace to reason with those who pass by, and finally in that august assembly of the learned men of the Areopagus. What was the conviction of Paul's motivation? Well, let me ask you a question. Why is it, beloved, in our day, that in spite of the world's great needs and opportunities that we see on every hand around us, the church so often appears to slumber on. And we're content that things that are should be as they are. Why is it that we are reluctant to evangelize? Why is it that Christians are tongue-tied in testimony? 
And the answer is, we do not speak as Paul spoke with that mighty, comprehensive gospel of the grace of God because we do not feel as Paul felt. And I think that's what he would say to us today. Look back at verse 16. He was greatly distressed, says Luke, as he saw the city wholly given over to idolatry. He had a paroxysm of indignation, the very Greek word, as I told you, literally transliterated into English, is the word paroxysm. It's as though he almost took a stroke. He was so indignant and filled with jealousy for the honor of God as his spirit was stirred within him when he saw men bowing down to stocks and stones and giving them the revenue of glory that belongs to the unique and ever-living God. And as he saw the name of that God profaned by idolatry in the streets of Athens, his spirit was stirred within him. Not by the monuments and the temples and the great architecture, the ruins of which we can still see today, such as the Parthenon. But his emotions were aroused in a renewed and sanctified humanity that was dedicated to the glory of God. Now just look with me for a moment or two at the depth of Paul's motivation. What comprised his motivation? What distinctive ingredients do we see in the stirring of Paul's heart? Let me mention three of them. There was indignation because of the dishonor being done to Christ. Remember, he'd arrived in that great city with the conviction that his master was the Lord of all. He only had a right to reign over the lives of men. And as their sovereign, he alone had the right to be honored in every way. And burning with that zeal for the honor of Christ, he came into this city swamped with idolatry. Now let me pause and ask you, in your day-by-day conversation, are you stirred up with indignation when you see men and women today given to idolatry? You know, I know Christians who get very worked up about unemployment and about various aspects of our government's policies and political workings or about a new garbage tax in Jacksonville. But is there the same indignation concerning the maintenance of Christ's honor as we see the low spiritual and moral condition of this city around us as we see its godlessness and crass materialism and self-idolization. Are we indignant about these things or do we view these dispassionately when we are so passionate about these other things? There was indignation that burned like a fire in the heart of this man. But you know, there was jealousy as well for the unique truth of the gospel. 
As he came there and realized that the Athenians, as Luke tells us, spent their whole time, day and night, in doing nothing else but either hearing or speaking some new novelty. They were men, in other words, who had open minds, who were ready to listen to anything and give anything the benefit of their attention and their intellect. And Paul came among them, by contrast, mark you, as a man with a closed mind. Did you notice that in his address? And his mind was closed because he had tested all these other teachings and philosophies and views of life and had found them to be so inadequate and he had rejected them. And he had come among them as a man who was jealous for the truth of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Jealous for the unique truth of the gospel. And he was stirred with jealousy when he saw their foolish pursuit and fascination of everything that was new, the messages and the methods and the experiences and whatever it was that took their attention but were all of them inspired by fleshly motives and man-centeredness. Let me ask you, are you stirred by jealousy for the unique truth of the gospel? As you hear the claims of the scientists placarded everywhere today on television, in the National Geographic magazine and all these other magazines and papers we read, how evolution is the true origin of man and gives us the key to unlock man's destiny in all the future eons of time? What lies are being propagated in our society today? Are you jealous, as Paul was, for the truth of the gospel that says, as he said to the Athenians, that God created all men from one and all are therefore accountable to him? And in the face of false teaching, as you pick up this book and that book and read that magazine, written by a theologian of great standing, but who doesn't recognize the authenticity and infallibility of Scripture and begins to question the teaching of Jesus and deny some of his miracles. Are you jealous, beloved, for the unique truth of the gospel? You know, I've heard in the science of navigation that it is essential for the navigator to have fixed points from which bearings can be taken. And if he's out on the trackless, empty, vast ocean without those fixed points of the compass or the stars above him in the old days, He's a man in peril and greatest danger. And so it is in this voyage of life. And that is why Paul came as a man with a closed mind into the midst of men with open minds. Because the Christian in some areas must be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, whose mind has been made up. And he has those fixed points but are not for our opinions or approval, but they're there for our safety and our respect. The compass point and needle that guides us in the right direction. But added, you see, to that indignation and jealousy was the third thing. 
He was a man, evidently, who came to the Athenians with grief and sorrow in his heart. Do you not see that in his distress in verse 16? Surely that is part of how Paul felt as he came into a city that was swamped with idolatry. He knew that men were living in open rebellion against the living God, serving stocks and stones instead of the true and compassionate and forgiving God. And so he was filled with grief and compassion and sorrow and love for men and women sitting in deepest darkness. And let me ask you, have we as individuals, have we as a congregation felt this burden of grief for the salvation of the lost? Has the vision of the terrible lostness and the total ruin of men outside of Christ gripped our hearts and overwhelmed us so that as in the heart of the apostle there was sorrow and grief that men were going, as it were, in a handcart to hell. And he was overwhelmed as he was in Acts 20 verse 31 when he says again to the Ephesian elders who gathered on the sands of Miletus, remember how for three years I did not cease to teach everyone night and day with tears. The apostles' ministry was a tearful ministry. And as you and I see men thronging the wide road that leads to destruction, real people, relatives, friends, fellow citizens, neighbors, even people sitting in our pews with us, all seemingly ignorant of their ultimate destination before the judgment throne of God without a hope. We who are concerned about so many things, are we stirred with indignation and jealousy and deep grief about this? He spoke as he did because he felt as he did the depth and power of his motivation. Now, as I finish, there's a third thing I believe that Paul would say to us from this address to the Athenians, and it is concerning the clarity of the vision that God gave to him. You notice it again in verse 16. He was distressed to see the city full of idols. And you notice again in verse 22, as he addressed the Athenians, he said, I perceive, I see that you are very religious. And you have the same thought again in verse 23, where he considered the objects of their worship. Again, the verb in Greek is a verb to see. Now, the important thing is this, that if we do not speak like Paul with a comprehensive message. It's certainly because we do not feel like Paul. But then taking it one step further back, it is surely because we do not see like Paul. And that was the order of the events in Athens. He saw, he felt, he preached. 
And when he walked around Athens, he did not just notice the idols. Three times over, as I've reminded you, and in Greek it's very pointed and particular, the verb is theoreo, to behold, to see, anatheoreo, to consider as you see. You don't just notice something. You look at it, and you think about it, and you consider it. And you take to heart its implications. It's as though Luke is telling us in those verses, Paul looked and looked and thought and thought until the holy fires of indignation burned within him as he saw men and women created in the image of God giving to idols the homage that was due to him alone. The clarity of Paul's vision. That's where it all began. You know, what I think we do as Christians today is go around our Athens tourist-like, don't we? And we look and we notice. But do we see, beloved? And what I'm saying to you is that idols today are not limited to primitive societies There are more sophisticated substitutes today on every hand because an idol is fundamentally a God substitute. It can be a person. It can be a place. It can be a thing which occupies the place of God. Covetousness is idolatry. The desire to have things and more and more of them and things that do not belong to us. An ideology can become an idol. Fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, drugs, children, friends, family, husband, recreation, television, possessions. Yes, even the church and religion and Christian service can become an idol. And all around us, everywhere today, is a society given to idolatry. And just think, if in verse 16 we read, while Paul was waiting for them, his companions, Timothy and Silas, in Jacksonville, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. Now, isn't that striking? When you go out into that city, do you really see? Do you? Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. Paul was deeply stirred by the sight of pagan Athens. And the question he would address to me is, what effect does it have on you, my Christian brother, my Christian sister? Do you have that clarity of vision that drives you to be jealous for the honor of Almighty God? Because it all begins here. What I see determines what I feel, determines what I do. And that's the conclusion we've come to this morning. How have we as individuals and as a congregation and as a denomination been alive to our responsibility as stewards of the manifold grace of God? My concern, 
let me tell you this morning, is not whether the Presbyterian Church in America increases or decreases as a denomination in the next 12 months. After all, Paul, in spite of a comprehensive message, was met by laughter in Athens. But my concern is, are we the preserving salt in a putrid and decaying society, seeing things as we should, feeling things as we should, bringing the comprehensive message of God's grace as we should, whether men laugh and sneer and mock at it, or whether they receive it with open arms? Are we lights shining in the surrounding darkness? Real men and women for Christ. Are we bond slaves for the Lord Jesus? Redeemed by his grace and enlightened by his spirit. Who are zealous for his glory. That's my concern. And so if we find ourselves there. We will bring a comprehensive message. We will come with the conviction of a true biblical motivation, we will come finally with a clarity of vision that will bless the world around us and Christ will satisfy men's souls as they humbly submit to him as well he may satisfy them who is all and in all. Laughter in Athens. Let's pray.